In our country, we have uh, certain rally cries that focus us on remembering. And I know you're familiar with some, but let me just to kind of refresh you. For instance, remember the Alamo. So just a picture of the Alamo. If, if your heart just starts to race a little bit, you know that you're a true Texan, okay? If you're new here and you're visiting, let me tell, assure you, this is a very significant place in Texas history. You'll remember General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, 1836. He marches his army of about 1,500. They go through the mountains. They face snowstorms. They go through all kind of inclement weather, and they lay siege upon this fort. And they're held up in there are all of these Texians who have made a vow that they're going to fight to the death. After a 13-day-long affair, Santa Ana is successful. They overtake the Alamo. There's very few that actually survived this event. What became the rally cry for the Texians that remained was this. Remember the Alamo. Not too long after this event, April 21st, 1836, General Lopez, he and his forces are all taking their siesta, as was their practice. Sam Houston and seven, eight, about 800 Texians came, overtook them and overwhelmed them and actually won this entire conflict. While the soldiers were fighting during this attack in San Jacinto, the soldiers would cry out, remember the Alamo. Let me give you another rally cry from our nation. Remember Pearl Harbor. The Japanese laid, uh, put, placed a raid on Pearl Harbor, one of the most significant and defining moments in all of history. You remember, it was Franklin D. Roosevelt, the president, in address to Congress and to a nation in shock, where he said that this is a date which will live in infamy. Shortly thereafterwards, Germany declared war on the United States. And there was a rally cry in our country, and it was, remember Pearl Harbor. There was actually a song that was, that was its title, and they played it over and over on the radio Remember Pearl Harbor. For something more modern, I think a lot of us will remember this. September 11th, 2001, we had 19 Muslim terrorists armed with box cutters and knives. They take over four different planes. Two of them, they flew into the World Trade Center, the towers there. One, they crashed into our Pentagon. And the other... We had some Americans that were able to overtake them. That plane, we're not sure what they were looking to attack, perhaps the White House itself. That plane crashes about 80 miles south of Pittsburgh. And we are familiar with Remember 9-11. It's a rally cry because we never want such an event ever to happen in our country and to our people again. You need to know that God has a rally cry. In fact, it is the rally cry of Easter. And you'll find it in the text that we're going to look at today in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The beauty of the rally cry of Easter, it is, it's not what has been to, done to us. The rally cry of Easter is all about what God has done for us. And it is simply this. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now, 
You've heard this. Christians say, you know, Jesus can really change your life. You've heard that. That is the bold, audacious claim of Christianity that in Christ, by believing in Christ and Christ alone, no other, to the exclusion of all other world religions, Jesus Christ alone can transform your life and change your life for eternity. And that is super bold. How, though, do we actually know that that's true? I mean, how do you really know for certain that Jesus Christ truly transforms your life? Well, if you're looking at the rally cry of Easter in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he spells it out. First, I'll tell you, how do we know that Jesus transforms our lives? It is because of his resurrection from the dead. Take a look at it. He says, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. The tense there is the idea that you keep remembering. Like, it's not a one-time deal. It's not like, well, at Easter, I'll remember that Jesus rose from the dead. It's like, it's an ongoing pattern. It's like a way of life. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Every person, you and I, we all share this inherited condition that we're all self-centered. We all try to seek to find meaning and purpose and peace and identity and even forgiveness apart from God. We want to do it on our own. In fact, it's almost kind of like a virtue in our nation to be self-made individuals. The problem is, is that you and I were created by God to know God, to enjoy God. He wants us to experience genuine relationship with himself. That's actually why he's created us. But we try to do life on our own. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It's, it comes from ancient archery. You, when you shoot an arrow, you were to shoot at the target. And if you missed the bullseye, it was called sin. Or if you're shooting at game and you missed the clean, perfect shot, it was called sin. It means to miss the perfect mark. You and I, we've missed it. We're created for God, to know God, to enjoy God. We're trying to find identity, peace, hope, strength in anywhere and in anyone else but God. All of that is sin. And to show you the exclusive claim of Christianity, God actually sends his son to deal with our sin issue. You know, all of the world religions, they're all trying to reach God. They're trying to do things, trying to perform, trying to empty yourself. In the case of Buddhism, God knows that you and I could never deal and address our sin issue. That's why he sent his son. You see, you and I need someone that is fully human and fully God. We need someone who's fully human, who can represent us, who is actually a human representative, and yet we need someone who is divine, who can actually satisfy God's just wrath against sin, who could literally pay the penalty for sin. And that's what he's done. He sent Jesus to the earth. He lived a perfect life. He dies on a cross. They bury him in a borrowed tomb, and he rises from the grave three days later, and friends, that is the rally cry of Easter. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. You see, God is a promise maker, and he is also a promise keeper. You see that next phrase he says? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. You see, a thousand years before the coming of Jesus, God made a promise. He made a covenant with King David, Israel's greatest king. And this promise was this. That you will have a son, one of your descendants, will reign as a king forever. He will never end his reign. And so God makes this promise. And what Paul is saying is, remember the rally cry of Easter. Jesus Christ, 
risen from the grave, risen from the dead. It's, it's pretty fascinating when you look at the promises that God makes. Not only did he make this promise, like in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, where David, you will have a son that will reign forever. He also says this, that in Micah 5, 2, written about 700 years before the coming of Jesus, that the Messiah, this eternal king, he's going to be born in the city of David. Anybody happen to remember where the city of David is? Remember from Christmas? I know in Easter. Anybody? A little town of... Oh, wow, this is super. Oh, we've got a lot of sharp people today. Great. All right. It's, it's Bethlehem. And so you want to be looking for a king who's going to come from Bethlehem. This next prophecy God gave really narrowed the field. Because in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, about 700 BC, 700 years before the coming of Christ, there is this prophecy and promise given that this one is going to be born of a virgin. That ought to narrow the field down, right? And it does to one. But let me give you some other promises that God gives. He says that this Messiah, this coming king, he's going to suffer and die for our sins, Isaiah 53, and that he will actually make his entrance into Jerusalem at A.D. 33, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. You get it? He is like continually focusing and narrowing on one individual. And then there are prophecies given that this one who is coming He's going to not only suffer and die, but that he will rise again. Like in Psalm 1611 or Psalm 2 verses 7 through 8 or even Isaiah 53 where it says he will see his offspring. Well, what you're seeing here is that there's a narrowing. There is a narrowing to one individual. And that individual is Jesus Christ. In fact, there's about a hundred prophecies that are given regarding the Messiah. And Jesus, in his first coming, fulfills all 100 of those. There are more prophecies that are given. He's going to fulfill them in his second coming. But he has got it narrowed down so specifically that it is in one, and it is Jesus. You see, God has promised, and he has delivered. And friends, you need to know this. You can be adopted into God's family. You can be a child of the king when you believe the rally cry of Easter. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead and notice how paul refers to it he's a descendant of david according to my gospel not the gospel but my gospel it's kind of like you've got the kid right well okay there's a kid but when you say it's my kid there's personal ownership and that's what paul is saying he's moved from i understand the gospel to this is my gospel and i'd like to ask is this your good news you may know what I just had to say. I presented you the gospel. Christ came, fulfilled the prophecies, lived a perfect life, died, paid the penalty for sins, and rises again on the third day. You believe in him? You've got eternal life, life with God. That's the gospel, but it is, is it your gospel? Could you say with Paul, that's my gospel? You see, God has promised, God has delivered, and you know what? He has proven to the world that there is indeed one who can not only forgive sins, but give you genuine life with God. You see, at the resurrection, he appeared eventually to some women who had visited the empty tomb. They thought they were coming to go to see, anoint the body of Jesus, and he's no longer there. Then Jesus makes an appearance to his disciples, minus Thomas. You remember doubting Thomas. He doubts for an entire week. 
that must have been an interesting scene. All like, we've seen the risen Lord. And he's like, no way, can't believe it. Yeah, I tracked with Jesus for three years, but I can't believe that he actually rose from the grave. And then you remember, a week later, Jesus appears to him. And Jesus, to authenticate to the world so that you know that your faith rests on facts, appeared to more than 500 other people at one time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You see, God is a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. And if you will believe in Christ, you know this, you can be forgiven. You will have genuine relationship with God. Your eternity is secure. In fact, he has promised that one day you will have a body like Christ that will be able to live forever and to enjoy the greatness and grandeur of God and all of his creation. But the question is, will you believe the rally cry of Easter? See, the resurrection of Jesus, it changes everything. It transforms our life, past, present, and future. And you'll know this. You will know what you really believe by what you're willing to sacrifice and even suffer for. You see, Paul is saying, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, look at verse 9, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. You know what you believe by what you're willing to sacrifice for or even to suffer for. For Paul, he says, this is my gospel. And I'll tell you, that's how we know that Jesus will transform lives. You know how we know? Because of the resurrection of Christ. Let me give you the second reason. Why we know for certain that Jesus Christ can transform lives. And that is because of the revelation of his word. You see, he says, Paul says, you know, I'm writing at the end of my life. And that's what the letter of 2 Timothy is. It is a letter written to his protege, Timothy. It's written in his final days. He knows, it's about AD 64, that he is going to be executed by Rome. He's being held as a prisoner. He knows that this is his final letter. He's saying what is most important. And hence, that's why we find the rally cry of Easter. He says, you know, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, even though he wasn't one. But the word of God is not imprisoned. See, God transforms our lives through his word. You see, the word of God, the Bible, the scriptures, they have one focal point, and that is Jesus Christ. If you're like, man, you know, the Bible, big books, I, I don't seem to get a lot of this. I will just tell you, the overarching theme, the key to the Bible is Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament shows not only our sinfulness and who God is, but it keeps pointing specifically to a coming one, one who will deliver you, one who will be a savior. And the New Testament not only shows his arrival and his fulfillment of the prophecies, but it shows that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead to authenticate to the world. Indeed, he's God, and he's promised to return. And that's actually how the book ends, the book of Revelation, showing about the return of Jesus Christ. You see, God gives us his word to focus us, us on the rally cry of Easter, which is this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. It's very interesting. When Jesus, after he was resurrected, he was walking to Emmaus with a couple of other guys, and they were recounting the events that take, took place, and they, they were prevented from actually recognizing Jesus. He kind of just didn't allow them to see, as being God, the resurrected one. He had the ability to do that. And this is what Jesus said to them. He said, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ 
to suffer these things and to enter his glory. Then beginning from Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Would have loved to have been on that walk. How cool would that be to having Jesus telling you how all of the scriptures point to him? Or remember what John wrote in his gospel, John 20, verses 30 and 31. He wrote, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You see, God gives his truth to transform us. And what it does is the Bible keeps pointing us to the rally cry of Easter, which is remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. See, Jesus transforms lives not only through his resurrection, which literally gives empowerment and spiritual life to those who believe. He also does it through the revelation of his word. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul wrote this. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, you, you, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. What is it? The word of God, which does its work in you who believe. A work of reviving, of renewing, of once again entering hope and bringing peace, of focusing us back upon Jesus who is resurrected. Friends, this is the rally cry of Easter, and it's found in the scriptures. You know, and Paul says, you know, they've chained me up, and I'm being treated as a prisoner. But notice what he said, but the word of God is not imprisoned. You can chain the messenger, but you can never chain the message because God cannot be chained down. The word of God speaks of the love of God that is found in Christ. And it keeps pointing us to this rally cry, the rally cry of Easter, which is remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. How it works is this. The spirit of God takes the word of God to accomplish the work of God in the life of the believer. That's how Jesus transforms lives through his resurrection and through the revelation of his word. You could think of it this way. God brings transformation through his revelation. It's really interesting. If you've ever been to Rome, if you, you can, you can actually take a tour of some of the catacombs that are underneath the actual city. There are uh, estimated about 600 miles of these catacombs that were dug out by Christians. And they, they actually not only were laid to rest there, but they worshipped in the early centuries after the coming of Christ and his resurrection. They worshipped in quietness in these catacombs. It's estimated that there were perhaps as many as four million Christians that worshipped there and were eventually buried in these catacombs. And there are writings on the wall. And one of the often found inscriptions is this. It's actually from 2 Timothy 2.9. And, and it says, the word of God is not bound. Friends, isn't that powerful? You can treat us like slaves. You can, you can treat us like criminals. You can throw us to lions. But I can assure you, the word of God cannot be bound. Because God brings transformation through his revelation. This revelation keeps pointing us to Christ. And any attempts to silence God's word have always been thwarted. Like, for instance, in the 1930s, Stalin was going to put an end to Christianity in Russia. And they purged all the Bibles they could find, and they took believers wherever they could find them, and they hauled them off to the gulags to die. 
And it was cold and dark in Russia. But remember when the walls came down and we actually all of a sudden could interface with the Russian people? You know what they found? That the word of God still remained alive and they were believers despite the efforts to purge Russia of Christianity. Um, you see it in the rise of communism in Russia. You also you see like in the cultural revolution that has took place in China where it made it illegal to worship Jesus or even to have a Bible. Well, actually, the church continues to grow and thrive. And like even right now in North Korea and Iran, where they just kind of like have this ironclad grip to try to prevent people knowing about Jesus and his resurrection. The stories that we're learning is that it doesn't work. You know why? Just like they wrote in the catacombs, the word of God cannot be bound. Friends, this is the rally cry of Easter. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And it, friends, this is actually one of the reasons why you and I need to be in the Bible. Because this is how God brings about his transformation. Through the resurrection of his son and through the revelation of his word. Now, I know it's Easter. And a lot of you are thinking about, like, what is to come? Like, dinner, right? Now, some of you are sweating this, like, how am I going to do this? I got all these people, you know. And some of these guys are really big eaters. And even now, you're, like, starting to sweat about this. There's some others, though. I can assure you, they're really excited about Easter dinner. They may have been brought here under duress, against my will, but it's part of the deal. I go to church, you feed me, okay? And so they're looking forward to this, right? And you know how it works. You're going to get this huge plate of food, right? Remember, guys, it is a contest, okay? Show them what you're made of, and you pile all this food on. But you know what happens about, well, there you are. You could be looking at this pretty soon, right? What happens is about four hours later, though, you're hungry again, right? Or maybe in some, okay, maybe it's three hours. Okay, whatever it is, okay? But you get hungry again because you know why? Our bodies need nourishment. That's just kind of our wired. We don't do real well if you go prolonged periods without eating, right? Yeah, uh, if you're married, okay, you know that of your, of your husband, he needs to eat regularly, or we're going to have problems, right? I need to tell you something. Your spiritual life, it needs spiritual sustenance. If you try on the starvation plan, some sort of diet that doesn't actually include God's word, friends, it's like you're like constricting your soul. Jesus said this, Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. Just like your body needs food, physical food, so your soul needs spiritual food. And that spiritual food are the scriptures. You know, being in a church that teaches the word, taking time to just incorporate God's word in your life, you know what it does? It reminds us of the rally cry of Easter, which is Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And so, can I just ask you, how are you doing? How are you responding to the rally cry of Easter? Maybe you're here and you're like, ah, you know, I'm sweating this and I'm just, I just got to get through this. Maybe, maybe you are refusing and rejecting Jesus Christ and his gospel. Yeah, you've heard, you heard this morning, maybe you've heard this before, but you're like, not, nah, it's not going to work for me. You know, you might be like George Wilson. No, you might be like, who's George Wilson? Let me give you a little American history. In 1829, George Wilson and his compadre, James Porter, they robbed the United States, a United States mail carrier. Okay? They were apprehended. They had the charges brought against them. May 1830, 
after their trial, they are both found guilty of six charges, including robbery of the mail and putting the life of the driver, the mail driver, in jeopardy. Both Wilson and Porter received their sentences. You want to guess what it was? That's right. They were, they were to be executed by hanging. Okay, so if you ever think about doing something unkind to your male guy, you might want to rethink that, okay? And so it was to be set July 2nd, 1830. This is when they were to be hung. And for Porter, why, that's actually what happened. But it didn't happen for George Wilson because Wilson had a few friends who were very influential and they actually knew President Andrew Jackson. And they petitioned President Jackson to give a pardon to their friend, George Wilson. And so President Jackson actually did. He issued a pardon for the six charges that are all regarding mail. Now, uh, George Wilson had some other issues and some other charges that had been brought against him. And that would equate to about 20 years in prison. But he, was, he actually was placed in front of him a presidential pardon signed by Andrew Jackson himself. But incredibly, the reason we remember George Wilson is that he actually refused the pardon. Nothing like this had ever happened before. This went all the way to the Supreme Court because they didn't know, what do you do? This has never happened. The U.S. Supreme Court determined, quote, the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. It is his property, and he may accept it or not as he pleases. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote this, and listen to these words. Quote, a pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But, he goes on to say, delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. In the case of Wilson, he understood it. He understood the implications of receiving it. And he rejected it. And you know what happened to him? They hung him because he rejected the pardon that was given to him. You know, it's, that's why we're like, that is crazy. What was this guy not thinking? You know what I mean? What, why would you do that? You know, if you are rejecting Jesus Christ and refusing the gospel, you might be like George Wilson. Let's just have like just a little honest conversation here. If you're here today and you're just like, you know, I flat out, I don't believe. Uh, you can't obviously deny that Jesus is on the earth. Like, that's, that's not even something that's debated because non-Christians, Christians alike, all know that. Other non-believers even wrote of Jesus' life and even some of his works and miracles. Resurrection, a well-attested fact in history. But if you just like, yeah, you know, that's just a myth. And I'm going to take a pass on that. Glad it's working for you. Glad it's working for the nice people in the church here. But I'm going to take a pass on that. Well, you know, if you're right, let's just say hypothetically, if you're right, you know what that means? When we're dead, we're dead. Uh, I think you'll find that it, you'll be hard pressed to find a Christian, someone who is following Jesus, who says, boy, I really regret that. That really made my life miserable. I don't think you're going to be able to find one because people who are believing in Jesus see God doing a lot in their life. And it's very meaningful. 
perhaps the most meaningful aspect of who they are is this relationship with Jesus. But if, if you're right, hypothetically, when we're dead, we're dead. I've, I've had a good life. I'm hoping you're having a good one. But if you're right, when you die, when we die, it's over. But in this moment, can I ask you, have you considered if you were wrong? Just, just take a minute. What if you were wrong? What if you're wrong about Jesus? What if you're wrong that indeed he is the Son of God? That everything promised had been delivered and, and that he really is the Savior of the world? That he is the only means of real relationship with God? Like he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That if you reject him, you pay the penalty for your sin, which you can't, eternal separation from God. You know, if you're wrong and you, and you keep rejecting Christ, you're kind of like George Wilson. And you're going to have to... Re- face the implications of your choice, of your decision. You know, God has a way of cutting through our little self-made defense shields, doesn't he? Yeah, you can kind of like, yeah, it's fine, I'm going to do my own thing and kind of just fill my life with whatever little idols that kind of bring me joy, happiness, and a sense of peace. But you know what? Sometimes life hits you really hard, doesn't it? And it's those moments God's trying to get your full attention, and he's calling you to believe the rally cry of Easter, of remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And can you do this for me? When you come face to face with your own mortality, or when life hits you so hard and it lays you on your back, do this. Remember the rally cry of Easter. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead and believe while you can. That's assuming you're going to have another lucid moment like that. I have... uh, Familiarity only with a few deathbed conversions. One of them is written in the scriptures in Luke 23 where Jesus, he's actually crucified and there's two other criminals on either side of him. And one of those who had been just kind of hurling insults and abuse on him actually recognizes that indeed this Jesus is the promised Messiah and he's innocent and declares him as such. And you remember he says, remember me and we come into your kingdom. And remember what Jesus said today, you will be with me in paradise. What do we have there? You got a deathbed conversion. Uh, in my life, I've only witnessed one. Um, 2008, uh, I was asked to go and speak with a man who was dying, Mr. Leonard, and I presented the gospel to him. I had told, I'd been told this guy had rejected Jesus his entire life. His daughter asked if I'd share one more time, and this man believed, and he died shortly thereafter. But friends, that is the exception. Well, God has your attention He wants you to understand the full implications of the gospel and the rally cry of Easter. Do you know that denial of Christ has a disastrous eternal end? Did you ever see the movie Get Low? I saw it because I really like Robert Duvall. He's a great actor. One time, actually, I saw Robert Duvall at Salt Lake down in Austin. Super cool. And anyway, I I watched this movie Get Low. Have you seen it? It's it's a pretty interesting movie. It's based on a folktale and the real-life legend of a guy by the name of Felix Bush, who in 1930s is this Tennessee hermit. And he lives as a recluse. And in this movie, he goes to this pastor, a pastor by the name of uh, Gus Horton, and he asks this pastor for help to arrange a funeral. And so in this movie... Here comes this hermit, okay, and Duvall playing Felix Bush. He shows up, he takes his big wad of cash, and he just puts it on the pastor's desk. It's just kind of sitting there, and he says this, it's time for me to get low. Okay, and he's, the pastor's like, what? I mean, you know, as pastors, we hear some like, crazy stuff, and you're like, 
And he says, what is, what is that? What do you want? What do you mean? He says, well, it's time to get down to business. I need a funeral. And the pastor says, okay, well, well, who's the funeral for? And Felix says, it's for me. Oh, okay. And so Pastor Horton, he's like, um, well, uh, what would you like me to say about you? And he says, I want you to say what you're going to say right now to my face. And, uh, well, you know, Pastor Horton says, you know, well, I, you know, Mr. Bush, I, I, I don't know much about you. I've heard some stories. And Felix goes, what stories? What did you hear? And then Pastor Horton says this, you know, well, you know, stories, you know, people talk. What kind of stories? He says, well, sir, my mother used to say that gossip is the devil's radio. And what matters is when you come to the end of your life that you're ready for the next one. Now, have you made peace with God, sir? And this is what Felix Bush says. I paid. You see, as you watch the movie, you, you learn that uh, 40 years ago, he had an affair, an adulterous affair with a married woman. This, this, guy's, this gal's husband found out, and he becomes enraged and actually killed her. And Felix Bush felt such tremendous guilt and remorse over his sin that what he did as he lived as a recluse, away from society, never married, no kids, didn't interface with people. And for 40 years, he tried to kind of self-atone for his own sins. He paid for it, right? And what he wanted to find out is, is now, after 40 years, has it all been paid for? And this Reverend Horton, when he hears Felix Bush say, I paid, he wisely disagrees and he says, you know, Mr. Bush, you can't buy forgiveness. It's free, but you do have to ask for it. Friends, that's the, that's the issue here. Are you willing to believe? Honestly, you think you're going to pay for it? Don't think so. You think, you think you can earn salvation? You can clean up your act? You can do good works? Or you can atone for your sin? The wages of sin is death. That's why God sent a Savior, the God-man, to die in our place. The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? You see, what God wants to do is move people from refusing and rejecting Jesus Christ to receiving and remembering him. That's what Easter is all about. Jesus himself said, I am, remember in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? Because, friends, that is the difference in life. It's not a blind faith. It's not a, oh, I just, I'll just close my eyes and just wish that Jesus is resurrected. No. It's our eyes wide open, minds fully engaged. It is based on facts. It is plausible. It really happened. And we choose to believe what is true. We put our faith in the facts. And the rally cry of Easter is really the essence of our faith. Because God transforms our lives when we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Friends, that's why we keep remembering over and over. God literally revives his people as we keep thinking about this. Scott McKnight wrote a book called The Jesus Creed. And in it, he writes this. Yellow is not my favorite color. But now that I know the story of the post-impressionist painter Vincent van Gogh, I have come to value yellow differently. This famous Dutch painter sadly tossed away the truth imparted him in his Christian home, and he sank into depression and destruction. I mean, van Gogh even started like mutilating himself, like tore up his ear. And 
in this one time, um, I mean, he was, he was so depressed that he actually committed himself into an asylum that was a former monastery. McKnight writes this, the best kept secret of Van Gogh's life is that the truth he was discovering is seen in the gradual increase of the presence of the color yellow in his paintings. Yellow evoked for him the hope and warmth of the truth of God's love. So in 1889, after he had placed himself in this asylum, he is so deeply discouraged and depressed, he actually painted one of his most famous pictures, The Starry Night. And, and I'm sure you've, you've seen this before. And yellow reflects what he, where he actually saw anything about God's truth or God's love. At this point in his life, despite the fact that he came from a Christian home and knew about the truth about Jesus, all he could see is that the only warmth or truth about God could only be found in like creation, in the natural world. Very interesting. Do you see in the very heart of this picture where you've got it circled in red? Do you see that? That's, that's the church in the center of the picture. And it is the only thing that has no yellow in it. For him, the truth was not present, presented at the church. There was no hope. There was no life. There was no yellow. But a great change started to occur with Van Gogh. He began to fully understand and really start believing in the truth about Jesus Christ and about God's love found in Christ. And he found that his perspective and his life started to change. In 1890, not too long from when he did The Starry Night, he did another one of his famous paintings. And this one is The Raising of Lazarus. And in 1890, when he painted this, why this particular painting is just awash with yellow. His life was on the mend, and this entire painting is just kind of bathed in yellow to show you the radical change in his life by believing in the resurrection. He actually takes, you see where Lazarus there in the white? He actually puts his face at the face of Lazarus to show the power of the resurrection in his life. And friends, you see, yellow tells the whole story. Yellow is the new beginning. You see, it's the resurrection of Jesus that brings change and revival and peace and hope to your life, no matter what your circumstances are. Whether you're beaten down or discouraged or you're on the top of the world, it is the resurrection of Jesus and the rally cry of Easter. That's what really brings meaning, life, hope, purpose, peace, and identity. And so I just want to ask you, at this time, on this Easter Sunday, how much yellow? Do you have going on in the picture of your life? You see, God transforms and revives our life when we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And so the rally cry of Easter, it's meant to believe and be relived and rethought on a regular basis. You know, when you come to God in prayer, we're supposed to pray in Jesus' name. That's what he said in John 14. And when we do so, we not only fulfill what Jesus asked, but you know what else happens? we actually are once again reminded that this one, Jesus, he's risen from the grave. He is able. When you read the word, remember Jesus Christ risen from the grave. In your happiest moments, in times of great triumph and success, do this. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. The times of just going through daily routines or just simple activities at work, as you're going to school, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. When you're facing discouragement, you feel hopeless. When you're at the end, do this. Remember the rally cry of Easter. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And when you're about to take your final breath, 
This is what you do. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. For friends, this is the rally cry of Easter that God transforms our lives when we remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Let's pray.